Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving last week. You know, in, a, in American culture, Thanksgiving always marks the beginning of the Christmas season. And so what I want to do is I just want to begin um, this morning just by testing your knowledge of Christmas. So I'm going to throw out a few questions and see if you can answer these. All right, you guys ready for a big Christmas test? So uh, what do elves learn in school? They learn the alphabet. What about uh, what nationality is Santa Claus? He's North Polish. And then uh, why does Scrooge love Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Because every buck is dear to him. And then uh, what do you get if you deep fry Santa Claus? You get Crisp Kringle. And then if athletes get athlete's foot, what do astronauts get? They get mistletoe. So, all right, so we're the frozen chosen this morning. Good to see you. All right. Yeah, so we are beginning a new series today uh, in, in, um, in the Gospels uh, as we lead up to Christmas. We're calling it the characters of Christmas. And uh, so what we want to do is we just kind of want to dial in to uh, the major players in the Christmas story so that that we can really uh, discover the gospel, the good news according to Christmas. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand together uh, out of reverence for the word of God given to us today. So Matthew records this. He says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and the Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, 
And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. All right, so be honest with me this morning. How many of you kind of zoned out when I was reading that? Yeah, let me see a show of hands. When you're reading in scripture and you come across a genealogy, how many of you tend to kind of skip those or just skim it? Raise your hand. Let me see your hand. Okay, and you guys call yourself Christians. I just cannot, cannot believe that. So, so yeah, so genealogy and ancestry uh, has really become more and more popular uh, in recent years, so over the last 20 years in the United States. So there are a lot of people that will do the research. They'll go to the websites. Uh, they'll pay the, <clears throat> the membership fees and all of that. Now, for me, I, I don't really have any interest in genealogy. I've got enough relatives as it is, so I don't need uh, really any more. So I'm not looking for that. But, but probably many of you are. Many of you probably done that and spent a lot of time doing that. Now, my bet would be that while you may be interested in your genealogy, you're probably not interested in somebody else's genealogy. Can I, can I get an amen to that? Certainly. So, and so that is ac- exactly what we have here in Matthew's gospel. We have someone else's genealogy, do we not? And uh, it's an important someone else because what he's doing is he's giving us the genealogy of Jesus. So, so we come to scripture when we're reading on our own and we look at something like this and we just think, okay, this is a total snoozer, right? This is, this is just a total waste of time. Why in the world am I reading this? I can barely you know, pronounce those names, um, much less have anything applicable to my life in 2020 relative to to what has been stated. And so, and so I think a lot of us think that way. We just think this is archaic, this is ancient, this has nothing to do uh, with my life in 2020. And so then we think, well, if the first five minutes of every movie uh, are the most important and the first couple of chapters of every book are the most important uh, because they give you the reason to stay with it, right? Well, if that's true, then Matthew's totally lost us. He's totally failed because he hasn't given us any reason to keep going with this. Now, if you've thought that before, um, you are not alone. But here's what I would like to submit to you today. That this genealogy is critically important and it has everything to do with your life in 2020. I would submit to you today that everything you need to know about Christianity is right in the middle of that genealogy. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just give you four very simple takeaways from Matthew's genealogy this morning. And I think will help us kind of frame the Christmas season uh, in a way that is God honoring and and joy inspiring. All right. So you guys ready for this? Takeaway number one, Christmas is real. That's the first takeaway that we can get right from this genealogy. Christmas is real. Let me show you verse one, what Matthew records. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So what he is doing is he is basically saying Christmas is real. Jesus is real. That's how he's beginning this gospel. Now, a lot of times when you're reading a story or a myth or a fairy tale, it's going to begin with something along the lines of, you know, once upon a time or somewhere in a galaxy far, far away, something like that. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel that way. He begins his gospel with a genealogy. And I think the question is, why does he do that? Why is, why is that so crucial? Why is that so important? And I would submit to you that the reason why that's so important is because what he is outlining in his gospel, he is saying to us, this happened. 
It happened in space and in time. What I'm about to describe to you occurred in human history. It is as real as rain. That is what Matthew is trying to say. In fact, I would say it like this, that Christianity's most important feature is that it is grounded in human history. That's the truth. It's grounded in space and in time. It is, it is about what God has done in a, particular, in a particular place at a particular time. Now, a lot of times what we think is Christianity is kind of these set of principles that we live by. That's not Christianity. A lot of times we think Christianity is kind of what we do for God. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not primarily about what we do for God. Christianity is about what God has done for us and he has done it in space and in time. He has done it in human history. Now, most religions are built on a core set of principles that that you have to follow. Okay, so so if you're going to, follow that religion, you've got you to do certain things and not do other things. You've got to follow a certain core set of principles. What's interesting about those core set of principles in other religions, they're completely independent of whether the founder of that religion lived or not. So for example, you know, if you're going to be a Buddhist and you're going to live by the principles of Buddhism, really whether or not you, you know, really living by the principles of Buddhism is not even related to whether or not Buddha was an actual historical figure. Has nothing to do with that. Same way with with the Muslim faith and Islam. If you're going to live the tenets of Allah, really it's unrelated to Muhammad being an actual historical figure. You can live the tenets of Islam, whether he was or not, whether Buddha was or not. But Christianity is not that way. Christianity doesn't work. Because if you take Christ out of human history, guess what? Christianity falls like a house of cards. You can't do it without Christ. Now, just consider this. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are the recorded histories of Jesus. They really are. They are the recorded histories of Jesus. The central element in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the main thrust of those four Gospels are the death of Jesus. They span 33 years of his life. They focus mainly on three years. They condense his teaching down. But basically, the Gospel is a prologue to his death and then to the climax of the resurrection. All four of them are structured the exact same way. It's interesting, too, to note that the Gospels spend the bulk of their time on the very last week of Jesus' life. Now, why is that? Because what the Gospel writers are trying to convey to us is is Christianity is real, Jesus is real, therefore Christmas is real. That's what they're trying to convey to us. And that is why they're called Gospels. Because Gospels, the word Gospel itself means Good news. So, so the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. You means good. Angelion means message. It's a good message. We get the word angel from the word angelion. So, so an angel really is a good messenger. He brings, he brings good news. So the gospel is really a good message. Now, just let me just try to make this real for us. If you lived in ancient Greece, you know, many... You know, many moons ago, if you lived in ancient Greece and there was an invading army coming into your country, okay, and there was a general that was in charge of defending your nation. And he was a little shorthanded. 
And so he, he puts out a call to every, every able-bodied man and woman and child to come fight, to come defend the country, right? Now, what would that be? What would that call be? Well, that call's not going to be good news. That call's going to be a cry for help, would it not? Now, let's just suppose that that army, that that general, that commander of the forces scores a huge victory over this, over this invading army. Just consider that for a moment. And so he scores a huge victory, he fights them off, he's victorious, and then he sends a message out all across the people all over the countryside saying that the dark army has been defeated, security and peace reign in the land. Now what is that message going to be? That message is going to be a gospel. It's going to be a good, good message. Now Look at Luke 2.10 because you see the same kind of thing here where the angel, the angelos, if you will, said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you what? Good news. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So what this is is a message that that a savior has been born and he is going to be about his saving work. And so practically what this means is this, that God knew exactly what we needed. He knew exactly what we needed and he sent what, he need, what we needed and he sent what we needed in space and in time. And so God knew that we didn't need an education so he didn't send a teacher. And God knew that we didn't, we didn't need a military victory so he didn't send a general. And God knew that we didn't need medical attention, so he didn't send a doctor. What he did know is that we needed saving from sin and death. So you know what he sent? He sent a Savior, and his name is Jesus. And so in other words, what this means practically is this, that Jesus is not, you know, a lot of people in our culture today, a lot of people in the world today, they think Jesus was a good teacher. Yeah, I mean, you should follow the the golden rule. Yeah, you should love other people. Yeah, but that's it. And what I'm here to tell you is this, he's not a good teacher, he's a savior. Because Christianity is primarily not about what he taught, but about what he did for us in space and time. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says it like this, he says, there there has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more would not have made a difference. We've never followed the advice of great teachers. Why would we be more likely to begin now? Why would we be more likely to follow Christ than than any of the others? Because he's the best moral teacher? That makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, it is likely that we're, is it likely that we're going to take the most advanced ones? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying we didn't need a good teacher and God didn't send a good teacher to us. That's not the problem. The problem is deeper than that. The problem is you and I know what we should be doing and we don't live up to it. The problem is we don't keep the law that we, we already have. We don't keep the law of God that's written on our hearts. So we, we needed something more. And so what God did, and this is what Christmas is really all about, that God enters into human history to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And he did it in space and in time. And if you believe and receive this message, the message changes your life. 
And it's not primarily what Jesus taught that changes your life. It is what Jesus did that changes us. And so the most important thing about Christmas and the most important thing about the gospel of Christmas is that it needs to be received and believed. Now, this is why Christmas is such a big deal, because Christmas is really not about Santa Claus and, and sending out Christmas cards and putting up lights and, you know, getting, getting, you know, getting off from work and school. It's really not about that. We make it about that. We get all focused in on the commercial side of things. But Christmas is primarily about Jesus' birth brings in our new birth and Jesus' life brings in and ushers in our new life. And Jesus' death is our death and his resurrection is a guarantee for our resurrection. That's the big deal about Christmas and that's why we celebrate it. Now, in a year full of really bad news that we have had, uh, in 2020, I, I think the reality of Christmas should be a huge source of encouragement to us. I, I really do. Because, because in, in reality, I mean, just, just think of it this way. Our hope is not in a fairy tale. Our hope is not in mythology. Our hope is not in some fictitious story. Uh, our hope is not in what we can kind of do for God. You know, that we can, that we can kind of, do a lot of the things that he tells us to do. That's not what our hope in. Our hope is in. You know, our Christian, as Christians, our hope is not in a new Biden administration or a Trump recount. See, the reality is of the gospel of Christmas, the reality of Christmas is that our hope is in the coming of a Savior. And that's where we're leaning the weight of our lives on even in the middle of a, a year like we have had. See, because of Christmas, what that means is we've been reconciled with God. And we can be reconciled with one another. And because of Christmas, we have the new life of the Spirit within us. We, we have the Spirit of the living God within us, and He brings to us freedom, and He brings to us new life, and He brings to us creativity, and He brings to us power, and He brings to us joy, and He brings to us a, a whole new heart and a whole new life and a whole new outlook. That's what, the, that's what the Spirit of God brings to us at Christmas. You see, because of Christmas, we have a hope for a, for a new heaven and a new earth. That's why, that's why the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. Because you have so much to look forward to, even, even in a hard year that, we, that we've all had. So that's, so that's the first takeaway. That's takeaway number one. Christmas is the real deal. Here's takeaway number two, and that's this, that Jesus is the center of human history. I think... As we're looking at this, you know, as we look at this genealogy, as we look at this family line, I think what we see is that not only is Jesus the central character of the story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but he is the central character of all of human history. And what Matthew does is he takes what the world would say is an insignificant family line and he organizes all of world history around it. That's what he does. And so you ask the elite, the political elite in Rome in Jesus' day. You ask the intellectual elite in Rome in Jesus' day about this family line, and they would have scoffed at the notion that there's anything significant in Matthew chapter 1. Just like the elite today would scoff at the name of Jesus as being anything significant. 
And so what I would say is that even at the time of the first Christmas story, it sure didn't seem like Jesus was the center of human history. I mean, just think about it. You have Israel is just a small backwater Mediterranean country that's being ruled by someone else. It's being ruled by Rome. And uh, nobody in Rome was paying attention to this family line and certainly no one in Rome was paying attention to this nation of people in Israel. As long as they just paid their taxes and they didn't cause an insurrection, nobody's even given them a second thought. So Israel's just this little backwater, backward country in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert, you know, basically. But God makes the decision to enter into human history through this particular people, in this particular place, in this particular time. And what God does is he makes a promise to Abraham centuries before Jesus is even born. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, through you, I'm going to, imble- I'm going to bless the entire world. Through your, through your family, through your line. And what we have in the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. And I would even add that at the first Christmas, when this first Christmas story was unfolding, um, there, was, there was the Roman Empire ruling, ruling the world at the time. You had the emperor and his governors ruling with an iron fist. And it really seemed like from a distance they were large and in charge. It seemed like they were sovereign over human history. And what Matthew wants us to see is this, don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? The picture that he is painting in his gospel and the other gospel writers paint in their gospels is that God is the one who is sovereignly guiding human history to accomplish his purposes and his plans. In other words, there's a story happening beneath the story that you see on the surface. And so, and so that's, that's what he's trying to illustrate. And so you and I, we, we're going to read through the this story of Christmas, as we've done, you know, so many times through so many Christmases over the years. And we, we come to that part of the story where, where uh, you know, we, we read from Luke's gospel that Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem because Joseph has to register in his hometown. And so we just kind of look at that and we think, well, this is just kind of an odd detail that we're given in the story. In our minds, it doesn't make sense. In our minds, there's not really a connection. This is just an odd detail that, that we have to read about every Christmas season. But I would submit to you, there's a lot going on in that, in that 90 mile trek down to Bethlehem. You see, what Luke understood is that Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. One of them was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And what Luke wants us to see when he gives us that detail is God moves Rome to tax the world to get Mary and Joseph to move 90 miles down to Bethlehem so that that prophecy will be fulfilled. You guys following what I'm saying? What it is, is it's God moving the characters, uh, the figures on a chessboard like uh, chess pieces to accomplish his purposes in the world today. And I think that should be such a huge encouragement to us. I really do, especially in a year like 2020. 
that that should be a huge source of encouragement that, that God is sovereign over the events of human history, that he is in control, that there's a story that we see on the news, but there's a story underneath that that we can't see, that we're not always aware of. And that story is that God is sovereign and God is in control and that God is working beneath the events of our lives and the history that unfolds around us to accomplish his purposes. Even when it seems like from you and I, from our vantage point, man, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of all the turmoil that is our life in 2020, it seems like, man, Jesus is really taking his hand off the wheel. Can I get an amen to that? Absolutely. But can I assure you that he is not? Can I assure you today that in the midst of our pandemic fatigue, in the, midst of, in the midst of the grief and the heartache and the exhaustion and the frustration and the financial uncertainty and just the life uncertainty that has characterized this world, I can assure you that God is working to accomplish his purposes, not only in the world, but most especially in your heart and in mine. And that is really, really good news. You see, if he's the central character of human history, he's the central character in your life. And so if Abraham took him at his word and Mary and Joseph took him at his word, guess what you and I need to do? We need to take him at his word. Even when life seems out of control, we know God is in control. There's an unseen story behind the story. Let's drill down on this a little bit more. You know, when Jesus was born on that first Christmas, the Israelites, they had not heard God speak for 400 years. I mean, what you have is kind of a spiritual dark age for the nation of Israel. God had, there, had, there had not been a word from God to the people of Israel for 400 years. They were discouraged. They were being occupied and ruled by pagan Romans. Church, they didn't vote for the Romans to come in and do that. They didn't want that. That discouraged them even more. And I think some of us, we look, around, we look around at the situation in our life and we're tempted to get discouraged by the circumstances around us. We see what seems like to us, you know, growing unbelief in our country or a rising secularism in our, in our country, or maybe the shrinking of religious freedom in our country today. And we see the crumbling of institutions that we've relied on for some time, and we immediately begin to get discouraged because we think so much that our salvation is in the, in the here and now. And what I wanna say to us, church, that as believers, we're sojourners. This is not our country, this is not our home, and our hope is not in this place. That God is working in ways that we can't see to accomplish his purposes. And he was working back then in a way that nobody even realized his greatest work in human history 2,000 years ago in sending his son. And so what that means practically, the implication for that is absolutely huge because it could be that you come here today struggling in your life, struggling in your marriage, struggling in your family, wondering where in the world is God in the midst of that. He's right there with you every step of the way. You can take him at his word because he's the center of human history. But there's a third takeaway, and it's this. The news gets even better, that God is working in all things, good and bad, for his glory. He's working in all things, good and bad. Let's just boil it right down. I, I, love, I love this church, genea or, or this genealogy church, because 
because it's so messy written right here. You know what I'm saying? This is, there's so much chaos written in the lives of the people here. Uh, it, it's a great reminder that the scripture doesn't do image management when it's describing what's going on in the lives of God's people. Uh, it's real and raw. It's as real as rain. And, and, uh, and so it's crazy, it's messy, it's chaotic, but man, it's filled, it's filled with the grace of God. Let me, can I just give you one example of this? I think I need to kind of wake us up a little bit. Uh, let, 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 me, let me just show you verse three. And I want you to notice this. So he's, so Matthew's, he's writing the family line of Jesus and he gets to verse three and he's talking about Judah, okay? The father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, church, why in the world would he include the mama's name in there? Okay, why would he include Tamar's name? Because Jewish genealogies didn't include moms. So what's Matthew trying to do here? He wants you to remember the story of Tamar. He's trying to, re- he's trying to bring to your recall um, the story of Tamar. So can I just tell you guys the story of Tamar real fast? Okay, if you've got little ones in the room, you may want to plug their ears right at this point. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it PG-13, but I'm going to describe it just like the scripture uh, describes it. So uh, no, in, no image management here. So, so Tamar, Tamar was the wife of Judah, or the, Tamar was uh, married to one of the sons of Judah, okay? And and her husband passed away. Her husband died. We don't know how uh, in that way, but, but uh, Tamar's husband died. So in Israeli culture, it was the obligation of the brother, the deceased brother, to marry the, the widow and, and then provide children for her. All right. So, so that's kind of what's happening. So, so uh, Judah's son, his other son, Onan, married Tamar. Now, he didn't really like Tamar. He didn't want to do this. He did it out of duty. He did it out of obligation. And he certainly didn't want to give her children. Which meant that um, when it came time for them to come together, he would never seal the deal. Do you catch my drift? All right. So the King James Version has an interesting way of describing that. I'll let you look that up later. Uh, But anyway, so he 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 would not impregnate her so so God got ticked off at Onan and killed him that's exactly what happened Onan died God's not pleased with Onan he's not being obedient and God you know God takes him out and so now Judah is down two sons he's only got three he's down two and so Israeli culture said the remaining brother needed to marry Tamar. Well, Judah's thinking she must be cursed because two of the guys she's been married are now gone and he doesn't want to lose his third. So he starts stalling the marriage for years. And Tamar figures that Judah's never going to come around to this. He's never going to agree to this and she's going to be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and nothing's ever going to happen. So Tamar comes up with a plan. This is I'm telling you, this is a soap opera, but here it goes. So Tamar dresses up as a prostitute. And she knows something about Judah, her father-in-law. Judah likes to hang out with prostitutes. So she wears a mask and she dresses up as a prostitute. And, and she seduces, seduces Judah and he gets her pregnant. Well, three months later, she's showing Judah runs into her. He doesn't know the kids in her womb belong 
to him. And so she advocates a case against her that she should be stoned for adultery because she's sleeping around. And just before they pick up the rocks, Tamar says, time out. And she holds up a belt and she says, this is the belt of the man who is the father of my, of my children. And that belt happened to belong to Judah. Now that is an awkward family photo right there. Can, can I get an amen to that? Can you guys imagine what it was like at, on Thanksgiving, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner table with all this stuff going on? Can you imagine that? Are you feeling really good about the dysfunction in your family today? You should be, um, let me tell you that. So can I just ask the question, how messed up is that? How sinful is that? Are you kidding me? And guess whose family this is? It's Jesus. This is Jesus' family line. All the brokenness, all the sin, all the dysfunction, all the disobedience, you know what? Just like yours and just like mine. And so what it tells me is that it's not just the story of Tamar. It's my story. It's your story as well. And think about, think about the story of your life, that God knows your good motives and your bad motives. He knows all your mixed motives. He knows all your thoughts. He knows all your right words and your hurtful words. He knows all of your good attitudes and your bad attitudes. And yet he still loves you anyway. And so the Christmas story, this genealogy is a reminder to us that God works in the midst of our brokenness. He works in the midst of our dysfunction and our, and our struggling, sometimes many times sinful families, even when it seems like he's absent. Now, I'm not saying that God's pleased with the pain and heartbreak that you've experienced because he hurt along with you. His heart is broken along with you. But the truth is this, is that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so if God, if this is Jesus' genealogy, think about how God can work in your genealogy. Think about how God can work in the darkest parts of your family line. Do you have a prodigal son or daughter? Do you have a family member struggling with an addiction? Are you is there some kind of broken relationship in the midst of your family, church? God can take evil and turn it around for good. He can take the hardest things and turn them into blessings. But you got to take him at his word. You got to trust him. You got to believe that he takes all things, good and bad, and uses them for his glory. All right, let me share the last takeaway. It's number, number four here. And I love this. I'm going to end with this. That Jesus turns outsiders into insiders. That's what I, that's what I love about this genealogy is, is the fact that the work of salvation that was birthed at Christmas 2,000 years ago is the work of God building his family through the birth of his son in space and in time. Let me show you this. Uh, how God builds his family. This is from Galatians 4, 4, by the way, where Paul writes this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, you see, that's Christmas, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. 
Because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but you're a son and daughter. And if you're a son and daughter, then you're an heir through Christ. And how does God do that? He does it through the new birth. He does it through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God descends on us in all gentleness and power and love. And he whispers to us as he saves us that we are his children and that we now, we now have the Father's affection. We have the Father's inheritance. We have access to the Father. All we have to do is cry, Abba or Papa or Daddy. That's, that's what Christmas brought to us. And it's the greatest gift that has ever been given. And so what we see is that Christmas is real. That Jesus is working in our lives when we don't think that he is. He's working in the messiness of our lives. That God, God is working in all things, the good and the bad. And he's working to build a family, to take outsiders and turn them into insiders. I mean, just think about this, that when we become Christians, the book of Revelation says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't know what that book of life is. I think it probably is a genealogy. And it goes all the way back to a promise that God made to Abraham 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And by the blood of Christ, our names can be written in ink in the Lamb's book of life. Church, that is Christmas. That is why we celebrate. That's why we should be encouraged. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are moved when we think about you moving in us. We're humbled that when we were your enemy, we were objects of wrath. We were aligned with the forces of darkness. That you gave up what was most precious to you, your son, and he entered into our life in space and time. He really lived. He was really born. He really died. And he was really resurrected. Which means what is true for him, it is true for us by faith through grace. And so God, we're just blown away. We're blown away. in the midst of a turbulent, chaotic, sinful, dark world. Thank you that our hope is in you. You got this. There's a story underneath the story and that story is going to prevail. And so God, we just give you praise for that. Thank you for letting us be a part of it, for engrafting us into yourself, into your family, for writing our names in this long genealogy. God, we're, we're blown away. And so God, I ask that you would renew us, that you would strengthen us. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh and anew today. I pray that we would just walk out filled with love and joy and hope and peace. 
right in the middle of a pandemic. God, that we would just be settled in you. So Lord, do that work today. Do the work that only you can do. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.